Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. When we started The Nuanced Life, we planned to create four episodes, just make a short series about living wisely. But then we started hearing from listeners. You all have continued the conversations and taken them to places we couldn't have imagined. So we're launching a Patreon page to keep The Nuanced Life going far beyond the original four episodes and even the first season that we've created so far. Just go to patreon.com slash The Nuanced Life. For $5 a month, you'll get a special bonus episode of The Nuanced Life and help contribute to our community. And we'll also send you some fun The Nuanced Life swag in the mail. That's patreon.com slash The Nuanced Life. Welcome to another episode. We are a little backlogged on listener feedback. So we're going to go through some really awesome listener feedback we've gotten the last few weeks. And we are also going to have a conversation about energy, energy throughout our day, um, dealing with low energy, dealing with high energy, in particular sleep. So we're going to have a, a conversation about that in our main segment. And at the end of the show, of course, we will be sharing something to leave you inspired for the rest of the week. Karen emailed us about decision fatigue, and I really enjoyed your conversation with Anne, first of all. And secondly, I love this paragraph from Karen, where she says, there's actually a big difference between choosing the same thing every day and no longer considering something a choice to be made. Do you get tired of using the same flavor of toothpaste every day or driving the same car every day? Of course not, because we don't register those things as choices that should involve variety. The trick is to move decisions out of the what's for dinner mindset of choosing and into the toothpaste mindset of find something you like and then be done thinking about it. Oh, I love find something you like and then be done thinking about it so much. And and recognizing that it's still a choice because part of... You know, my personality, I don't like to be told what to do, as we have discussed at length. And so there's a little bit of me that, like, doesn't want to create rules for myself. But Karen's thought process is perfect for me. I just I made a choice and my choice is done now. I decided Mm -hmm. ahead of time. I do want to report that I have been working with the post-it note situation and I'm finding it wildly helpful. I'm realizing that. I also need to deal with sort of the flow of productivity, not only throughout my day, but throughout my week, because by Friday, I'm sort of low on productivity will. My son is, um, my youngest son is home half the day. So I'm just trying to focus on, you know, really 
get the most important, the sort of hairy task out of the way at the beginning of the week. Like last week, I really focused on Monday. And by like about a Wednesday or Thursday, I'm like, dang, what else do I need to get done? I was so productive on Monday or Tuesday. And the Post-it notes definitely helped with that. So I am endorsing the Post-it note system. I'm such a believer of get it out of your brain and onto a list somewhere, and then you'll be able to do it. It's just when it's stuck up in your brain that you can't make things happen. We also got a ton of feedback from you guys on ways to be frugal, not surprisingly. Um, Emily talked about how she makes her own cleaning products um, with Castile soap and baking soda vinegar and essential oils. You can clean and sanitize your entire house. So she is really big on that. Several of you emailed about clothing swaps, which I've been to and are very fun, where you gather a bunch of friends and everybody just brings what they're tired of. And then you switch it all around. And for free, you get new things that you're excited to be wearing. Um, I shared on the show that I sort of had a clothing swap with one of my friends who was done with some of her clothes, and now I wear them and love them and am really excited to have them. So I think that's also a really great way to save money. One listener emailed us about the Buy Nothing Project. It's buynothingproject.org, and there's also a group on Facebook. Sounds a lot like the year without shopping, and it's a way for a, but it's a way to do it as a community so you can use skills and times and acts of service and um, trade off things you're not wanting anymore, and I love that idea as well. And then we heard from Mike, and I love this idea. He said the biggest purchase that has helped us with being frugal is our chest freezer. We make double batches of dinners and freeze half, like the second lasagna that went in the freezer this weekend. We can freeze in-season fruit and vegetables when they're cheap at the farmer's market, like the blueberries that went into my yogurt this morning. We can buy a whole pig and part of a cow directly from a farmer so that we never even look at pork or beef from a grocery store. It facilitates so many things for us around eating healthier and more locally than we could ever do without it. And I I thought that was a great idea. It took me back to my childhood. My grandmother had a great big chest freezer. I always thought it was so interesting to kind of peek around in there. She would buy like six tubs of vanilla ice cream when it was on sale. Oh, yeah. My mother-in-law was a big on sale. We call it a deep freeze. Mm -hmm. A deep freeze, yes. And here's a hot tip, Mike, and for everyone else with a deep freeze. My husband started doing this. He uses a wipe-off marker and wipes what's in and writes what's in the deep freeze on top so he knows, like, the inventory inside because things do get buried in a deep freeze if you're not careful. So if you you need some um, help organizing your deep freeze, just get you a wipe-off marker. That's a really good idea. Yeah, it works really well. We also got a really, really great email from a listener who said that she struggles with frugality in a different way. She said, I sometimes refer to my relationship in money and spending as detrimental frugality. I have a very hard time parting with money, get anxiety in department stores, and will wear clothes to the point of being ragged. I've had to learn that it's okay to spend money sometimes, especially if, say, my clothes are making me feel shabby because they're sorely needing a replacement. And she talks about having a budget helps her spend money, which I thought was so interesting. So she knows that she's putting away $5 a month for some new clothes. So when that saves up, she doesn't feel like she's being, um, you know, like a shopaholic or anything. She knows that she saved it up to buy something that's threadbare and needs to be replaced. So you needing a budget and a cash envelope system has really helped her spend money, which I thought was so interesting. Yeah, I loved that too. And I love that phrase, detrimental frugality, because there's definitely a healthy range. Yep. And then we heard from Maggie. This is jumping back a couple of episodes when we talked about our collaboration. 
Maggie says, as someone who has eagerly read lots of books in the business management and self-help sections of Barnes & Noble as part of the how to be an adult part of my life, I was struck by the power of your collaborative effort and your willingness to share credit, authority, and responsibility. And I believe it shows in the quality of your content and the success of your collaboration. So many of the businesses and leaders that appear in business and leadership books, and many of them use all the same examples, highlight someone who is a genius like Steve Jobs or a hero. I feel like we undervalue the importance of collaborative leadership and complementary styles. And I could not agree more with that. And it made me think about how many things we do in our business, Sarah, that really don't follow the kind of leadership mold because we aren't trying to lead individually because Mm -hmm. we know that it's always a partnership. Right. Absolutely. There's a lot of those books. Like I love them. I consume them. I think they're helpful, but there's so many of those guys that I just, it's just a very distinctively male style that doesn't really fit the needs of my life. Um, and I'm happy to think about it differently and reinvent it if it, if it, the need be. The other thing is that it depends on what you're trying to make. I think the way you lead has to adjust to what do I want to be and who do I want to be? So if you are scouring the shelves of the library, you're probably going to find a lot of books that take you from like startup to IPO. But that's not what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And that's not what most people are trying to do, if we're honest about it. That's not the life most people want to have. So much of, I think, the way you need to arrange your life to have a successful career is about just deciding what place in your life your career is going to have. And that's a journey that I've been on for a while. And I like watching other people on that journey. Did you notice, Sarah, uh, Tish Oxenreiter, someone that we just love and uh, consider a friend, has been posting that she's simplifying her digital presence. Interesting. To to keep up with The Simple Show and Women's Work, her podcast, she's posting everything now through her personal Instagram account. And she has this great post about how she just wants to kind of declutter the digital sphere in in this way. And I love that. And like, that is really different than the advice that anyone would have gotten even a year ago. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think it's really interesting and important and a good time Part of what I see happening is that more women in leadership offers more forms of permission to do leadership and business your own way. Absolutely. I also wanted to share something that I listened to um, on our way back. We did a live show um, at our alma mater, Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky, and on the road back. I was listening to a program recommended by Kendra at The Lazy Genius, who's going to be on our podcast soon. We're really excited about it, called The Enneagram Journey. Um, by Susan Stable, and she does this whole series on the bath between us about the relationship between different Enneagrams. And I'm just going to be honest that a lot of times I just read these personality things about my own personality slash Enneagram slash Myers-Briggs, whatever. Um, But this time I was like, she really emphasizes about relationships. And so I listened to several about pairs of my husband's Enneagram and my Enneagram and one on just about my husband. And it was so enlightening and helpful and got me thinking about so many things about our relationships and conflicts we've had that are just so personality driven. Like he's a six. He says he's not a six. He is a six. Um, And he likes to question. And so every time we get in a fight, it's usually because he's questioned something, which me as a one read, 
I read it as criticism. I don't like to be criticized. I like to be supported. And I'm already hard enough on myself. I don't need your criticism. But it just helped me understand that he's just trying to um, analyze and understand the situation. That's how he processes something. And there were a couple other things that I thought, oh, good. This isn't just us. This is so helpful. So I highly recommend it if you're an Enneagram person. I thought it was really great. It's kind of a weird thing when you read analyses like that and and see how much they ring true. Because I think I do tell myself sometimes, this is just about me. And when I realize, no, we're just like living out these classic struggles. Oh, yeah. We're just... We're just part of the universal story, and that is okay. <laughs> Does and it, you know, it, it, and and there is help for us. Like it's actually better than okay because it means people have done this before, and we can learn from them. Hooray! That's what I. She is the podcaster. Suzanne has a really interesting perspective on this, and she just says, like, look, this is just a tool, but it's a very. I like it as a tool because it doesn't just say this is what's right with you or this is what's wrong with you. It's just this is some behaviors. Here are also some tools to. Balance those out, which I think I really like the Enneagram for that reason. And I think marriage is the hardest place to apply that. I'm so much better in our collaboration, Sarah, at seeing things that are just differences and instead of criticism than I am in my marriage. Like the same kinds of things that play out because you and I have different personalities and my husband and I have different personalities. I will interpret as criticism from him and not from you. (laughs) And that's ridiculous and unfair. And and it's something that noticing is helping me work on. But I do think that I need those tools even more in my marriage because for whatever reason, in that closest relationship, it's easiest to take everything more personally. Absolutely. But I'm really comfortable in our business relationship with, no, we just do things differently sometimes. We have different points of emphasis or different talents or different styles or whatever. And it's easy to for me to see that. I don't know why it's so much harder for me with my marriage. Well, next up, we are going to talk about some difficulties and challenges we both have, and we know all of you have, with sleep and energy, getting through the day and the evening. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sarah, I wanted to talk about energy today because something that has been occurring to me as we have followed all of the news surrounding Ronnie Jackson's nomination and withdrawal for VA secretary on pantsuit politics has been the conversation about him routinely providing drugs for sleeping and for waking up, especially for people who are traveling long distances, maybe trying to avoid jet lag and time zone changes. But as I kept listening to those stories and the intense criticism around him for dispensing those drugs, I thought about, like, how many Americans need something to help them go to sleep 
or to help them wake up or to help them get through the day. And you suggested that we turn that into a broader conversation about energy, which I think was a really good idea because it seems like we're all in short supply. I feel like this is a follow-up to um, our previous series on pantsuit politics, the Bruxism beat about grinding our teeth, which I think is also reflective of our the stress in our lives and how it plays out in our sleep. Mainly a lot of us are grinding our teeth to powder in our sleep. Um, it's something, caffeine in particular and going to sleep and getting up and what my body's trying to tell me is something I was thinking about a lot when I was trying to deal with my Bruxism. And by deal, because I'm an Enneagram one, I mean fix it. And what I think is so interesting is the ways in which the the narratives we tell ourselves about these items, caffeine, either caffeine to get through the day or medicine to go to sleep. And it's just a very need. I, you know, I have to have it. It won't, I can't live without it. Like there's, you know, there's almost like a caffeine culture as much as there is like a mommy wine culture that coffee is the lifeblood <laughs> of American women. And I, you know, look, I love coffee. I really do love coffee. But part of the way I was able to break that, at least that tightest grip of bruxism on my on my jaws was to give up caffeine for a while and it really helped me to see like the way my natural energy ebbs and flows because it's just at a certain point you don't I don't even I didn't even know what my natural energy levels like I knew I had a dip around 330 but otherwise it was very hard to piece out what is that a natural energy dip or is that a crash from because I took in something else like caffeine you know what I mean I do I've been trying to decide for myself whether those natural energy flows are useful. And I think they have to be or they or they wouldn't exist for us, right? Mm-hmm. And that there is that I'm not supposed to power through every right. moment. Right. And that's a revelation. I mean, that sounds so simple when I say it, but it's been a revelation for me to understand that we need periods of rest in our life and right. not just a week of vacation somewhere in the year, that we need constant built-in moments of rest and that using something artificial to move us through those periods of rest daily just doesn't work in the long run. Well, and so often we're being asked to move the, move beyond those sort of outside of our realm of control. Like, why don't we siesta like Europeans? Like, why is this idea that we, and I mean, I think best case scenario, if you're working full time, is this, you work nine to five with a lunch break. I think the more accurate portrayal of so many situations is, oh no, you get in early, you stay late, and then you better be working from home as well. I mean, it's not like 40 hours a week is the average. I mean, so many people work 60, 80 bananas hours. So, Well, and then I, you factor in a long commute each mm-hmm. way. And then you've got to come home and do the second shift of taking care of the family. And we're all in two-parent households. You know, so many of us are in households where both people work outside the home. That's what I mean. Yeah. And it's just, that's a lot. It's so much. That doesn't allow for any rest, really. Well, and don't throw things at me. I usually get eight hours of sleep. I am protective of my sleep. I remember in college vividly, well, I remember being forced to read um, Neuromancer for a pop culture class. I'm still sort of traumatized by even thinking about that book because it was so boring to me. I had to pace the library stacks. That's how I read. I had to walk to stay awake and read it because reading makes me very sleepy. And I just remember getting to a point where my thoughts wouldn't connect in college, especially my freshman year, because we were all staying up late talking all night long. And... 
I remember like I just couldn't <laughs> make them work together. And I thought, I got to stop this. I would go to class. I would lay down with my shoes on and think, okay, I can sleep for eight and a half minutes. And I would. I would lay down and sleep for eight and a half minutes before the next class. And I think that was my first sort of, this isn't going to work. I'm a person who needs sleep. It's okay. I don't, I've never felt the pressure to be like, brag about how little sleep I got. I like that I get a lot of sleep. I'm very protective of my sleep. Um, When we had newborn babies, um, my husband and I equally divided the sleep, even though he was quote unquote working full time, went to a law firm. He still got up. I got up. We traded off. And I I just, I really love sleep. And, but I realized that, so I'm thinking, if I sleep so much, if I sleep a good amount, why am I still so tired? And I realized because it's not just physical rest, because I'm clearly not processing all the stress and anxiety and sort of energy or letting my energy kind of calm down throughout the day. That's why I'm grinding my teeth. I'm not giving my mind enough sort of conscious rest during the day either. Times when I'm just, I'm not working, I'm not doing, I'm not completing, I'm not, you know, being productive. I'm just coloring or knitting or watching TV or reading a book. And I had to find space for that as well. At church this week, my pastor was just on fire. It was such a great message. And Part of her inspiration for the message was the passage from Isaiah about why do you spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Mm. Well, that was my reaction. I I pretty much made that noise from the pew. (laughs) It had been a long time since I'd heard that particular piece of scripture. And I sat there thinking about your labor on what does not satisfy and what a giant percentage of labor is spent on what does not satisfy and how different I feel now that I do work all day that is satisfying work and how much more at ease I feel and how much easier it is to sleep now that I am really happy with my professional situation. And that's true, even though I'm just a couple of months into self-employment. When I think too much about it, it is a terrifying period. It is in no way sustainable where I am right now. There are a lot of things about it that just are very, very unsettling. But I sleep better and I feel physically better and I'm overall more content. And when I saw that verse from Isaiah, I was like, oh, because I'm spending my labor on things that satisfy instead of things that don't. And I think that is a huge part of this entire discussion. It's still so difficult. Motherhood is labor that's incredibly satisfying, but dang, it is exhausting and it It is is emotionally exhausting and leaves you feeling so depleted. And what's so difficult when you get to a point where you don't have any energy, where you're sleep deprived is it, I find myself in this weird dance where, like I said, I like, I need stress relief, self-care time, but I'm kind of too tired to do that, you know, you get to that point where you're like, all I want to do is sleep. But then you lay down and your body is not, your body is in such a fight or flight mode. It can't sleep, you know, or you wake up and it's not to mention there's this entire outside factor of my hormones and whatever they're doing. Like I'm finally picking up on the fact that like certain times a month, I'm going to wake up sweaty. That's cool. That's just a thing that happens. Certain times a month, I need more sleep. Certain times a month, I need less sleep. And so picking up on all that on top of, am I managing my stress so that I can actually lay down and sleep and my mind can rest? Because I think it is unrealistic. And I think that's why people need sleep aids to think you can keep your mind in an anxiety ridden 
um, go, 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 do, 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 accomplish, accomplish, accomplish mode, and then just lay down and have restful sleep. It just doesn't work like that. And that's not a, you know, that's not a moral judgment. That's the, that's the mode of our society. And no one says like, oh, you need to give your mind rest unless they're turning it into like meditation, which does help me, but it's become sort of another way to guilt trip people. I feel like. Yeah, it's sad that rest is counterculture, but that's mm-hmm. kind of where we are. Ariana Huffington is doing her best, I tell y'all. She is out there beating the drum. She is. And meditation, I think, is a really interesting. I was having a conversation with someone about this, how meditation is kind of trendy right now. But it's one of the few things that is trendy in a mostly non-commercial way. Nobody is making huge amounts of money off meditation. I shouldn't Mm -hmm. say nobody. I'm sure somebody is. But for the most part, even meditation retreats and stuff that I see, the teachers are adhering to the Buddhist principle of come and donate to the teacher what you think it was worth when it's over instead of these sort of big budget projects. So I hope that has some staying power. I do worry that we're talking about it, like you said, as as sort of just another task that has to be accomplished in the course of the day Mm -hmm. instead of the mental rest that it's supposed to be. Another thing is you were talking about motherhood that came to mind. So you know that I love Where Should We Begin from Esther Perel. I was just listening to a couple of episodes back to back, and both of them involved a discussion about how the, the you know, very stereotypically, the wife in the relationship was tired and just out of energy by the end of the day. And so she would fall asleep and the husband would be awake for an hour, an hour and a half by himself. And he experienced that hour or hour and a half as a period of rejection. Mm. And that hit me so hard thinking about this conversation about energy because it's hard enough to just have energy from a pure physical standpoint. But then what creates the best kinds of energy, you know, emotional energy and spiritual energy varies for all of us. And it's not just that it varies for all of us, but that we depend on each other for it. Mm. And we interpret each other's actions through these different filters. I would never in a million years think of falling asleep in bed next to my husband as a form of rejecting him. Mm. But when I heard men speak about that experience, I understood it. Yeah. You know? Definitely. And a lot of what Esther Perel was kind of counseling these folks on was you have to understand how hard it is to switch out of mommy mode for yeah. women. So hard. And and then when the man in your life, for any reason, becomes needy in your eyes, then you go into mommy mode with him, too. And then I get mad. Then I'm just resentful. But, and then there, that's what she always says. There, there can be no sex when there's a parent-child dynamic. Mm-hmm. None. And so many couples fall into these parent-child dynamics because of this sort of imbalance in the way that they're understanding just the levels of energy they're each bringing to the relationship. And you know what I think it is? Americans, we're not super great at this. We want to, and I do this all the time, I want to, like, tackle it. I want to defeat it. I want to, like, own my energy and my time and just possess it and ta- like, I, you know what I mean? Like just dominate it and be the best at it and beat it into submission. And the older I get, the more I realize like my body doesn't, it's not going to play that game with me. Like I can keep trying if I want to, but I need to, you know, listen to my body. And when it says you need to slow down, you need to take some time off. 
make that possible in whatever small ways I can. You know, it's not like I can take a vacation every time I need it as much as I wish I could. But to find moments where I'm resting, where I'm enjoying, where I feel like I'm doing something just for me, treating myself um, and taking time that's not where I'm, like I said, like I'm trying to tackle a task. And that's really hard in, in learning about my natural energy dips, not only through the day, but throughout the week, throughout the month, um, seasons like we talked about throughout the year. And the better I am at that and the more I'm sort of try to tune in as opposed to just being, you know, winning at life, no matter the day, month, week, year, stress level, the better I am. And, you know, I think the truth is that we've just been oversold on hard work as a virtue. Mm. I think there is something really important about work and about working and giving your best while you work. I don't think that was ever meant to mean all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what we've interpreted it as, right? For this generation, it's you have to be working all the time. And that's what it means to work hard. It means to be constantly engaged. Yeah. And I think we've got to find a way out of that. I also think we have to give each other permission to do that and permission to gain the types of energy that are helpful. So something I struggle with, I have a couple of friends who any kind of interaction with them gives me a lot of energy. I think they're funny or interesting or whatever it is. Just a quick text message makes me feel really good. But I always think, like, I don't want to bother this person because many of them are still in the kind of career that I just left. Mm. And I know how tricky it was for me to divide my time and focus while I was in the midst of the throes of that kind of career. And I think that's hard. And so I struggle with, like, how do we sort of invite each other to take a breath and how do we trust that those interactions provide energy for them too? Just the, you know, the same way that they do for me. I think it's tricky. It is tricky. It's also just as tricky whether you're inviting someone in and trying to make space for someone who gives you energy to try to figure out how to cut someone out who do, who zaps your energy. Yes, but so important to do that. It's so hard though. You know, I think some of that is to – what helps me with that is to do it without judgment for myself or anyone else. Mm. So here's an example. We just went back to our alma mater to do a podcast. I'm not good at reunioning. I'm not really good at anything nostalgic. I'm just not a nostalgic person. There are lots of periods of my life that were terrific. There are also periods that have caused me great pain. And unfortunately, my brain tends to focus in on the painful ones instead of the wonderful ones, right? And so I was dreading this when I got there. I went into total flight, fight or flight mode. Like my whole body was just like, I just don't want to be here. I want to leave right this very second. And what I realized is like, I'm just not a person who should be super involved with anything from my past. And that is not because my past was bad. It's not because anything was wrong with it. There are parts of it that I really, really appreciate. People I really valued, relationships that taught me a lot, whatever. So I don't have to judge me or it. I can just say, this is not good for me. And I think that helps 
you create a separation with without a bunch of guilt because you're not trying to judge yourself or anybody else in the process. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's very hard to do, though. Yeah. I mean, listen, lots of years of therapy to get to that point of articulation. I think we should walk through some of the ways we manage our own energy throughout the days and weeks and months. What do you think? Yeah, and that's good. Okay. So I have learned with regards to, let's start with caffeine because it's the most um, popular way to manage energy. I have learned that I can do about a cup, maybe a two, and I cannot drink after 3 p.m. I cannot drink anything caffeinated. And I even, this is so sad, I even have to watch chocolate after about 3 o'clock. If I eat a very rich chocolate dessert, it is going to wake me up. And it is such a bummer. It makes me so sad, but that's the reality. Um, I'm not as good at realizing how much water plays a role in my energy level. And I need to be much better about drinking water throughout the day. But that's how I watch it. I watch it very carefully with caffeine. I do not take anything to go to sleep at night um, because I'm hyper, hyper, hyper sensitive to medication. So I would definitely be the person on Ambien that's like having hallucinations and um, like doing that middle of the night eating situation. Um, So that's with regards to the sort of two most popular things. I have been trying to do all the sort of traditional recommendations. I I get off my screens. I plug my, my phone. It's charged in my bathroom way far away from my bed. Um, I'm still doing several of the, the bruxism solutions, uh, putting my legs up the wall, sitting with my laying on the floor and putting my legs up the wall for about 10 minutes before I go to sleep. Um, I find journaling and doing a little gratitude. I've been doing listening to what frustrated me that day. And listing what I'm grateful for that day at the end of the evening really helps me. And I use lavender oil. I diffuse lavender oil. I sleep with earplugs and white noise because I'm very sensitive to noise. (laughs) It's a very intense um, routine. And then I wake up pretty naturally. And if I am super tired, I try to think, okay, why do I, and why am I not waking up at 6 a.m.? Why am I trying to sleep till 7? Maybe it just comes when my body needs that and I let that happen. And um, I meditate in the mornings and try to get outside and walk my dog in the mornings. That helps me a lot. I've been instituting Beth's afternoon tea. I really like having a break. And I also walk my dogs to get my boys off the bus. That's a nice, like, nice natural break when my energy dips. And I've been trying to pay attention to what Anne said about like really doing the stuff when my energy and focus is high, not just during the day, but during the week. Like I said, I'm just, I'm more motivated about Monday through Wednesday, by Thursday and Friday, I'm about done. I'm just going to let that be. That's, that's fine. There's no, that's not a character flaw. It just is who I am. And then, um, like I said, I, I use a really cool app called MyFlow from Alicia VD to just sort of watch my month and my hormones and adapt accordingly with exercise and um, tasks and food. And I highly recommend it. We'll put a link, another link in the show notes. And then um, I think that's the main stuff. I, we, we had a pretty extensive conversation to seasonal coverage, but those are my sort of main energy, my main energy flow work. So Sarah and I talked a lot while we were traveling about how Sarah thinks a whole lot more about systems and processes than I do. (laughs) So I have a less elaborate kind of approach to managing my energy. I do protect my sleep like you do, Sarah. When I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and was starting to talk with my physician about how am I going to live a normal life without being on drugs every day? One of the things he said to me over and over that has really stuck with me is that you need to treat eight to 10 hours of sleep like a prescription. And I have done that. And I think it's been really valuable to me. 
And I don't know why we don't naturally do that. That seems like a really common sense kind of instruction. But I needed I needed a doctor's permission to respect my sleep in that way. So I do. Do we want to take a moment, Beth, because we talk about parenting a lot on the show um, to talk about our because so much of sleep disruption for parents is the children's sleeping. And I feel like we have five kids between us, all that are pretty good sleepers. Maybe we should talk about that. Sure. This is very dangerous territory. Can you hear the trepidation in Beth's voice? (laughs) It's dangerous because I think that other people feel judged whenever you talk about something that you feel strongly about as a parent. And I don't want anyone to feel judged. So let me just tell you this. If you feel if you feel very strongly about your sleeping choices, we're not talking to you. If you are struggling and need a lifeline and just want to hear how we approach it, we're talking to you. With my first daughter, Jane, I thought that she was not a good sleeper. And what I realized is that I didn't know what I was doing in terms of her sleep. And I didn't understand that I needed to teach her to sleep. Yep. That's what I, hallelujah, all the praise hands. That's what my friend Elizabeth, who had a child a few years before me said, and it saved me so much drama. She said, you got to teach them to sleep like you teach them to do everything else. Yes. And I just think I didn't, you know, there was just something like it seemed that that's the thing she should come out knowing how to do. And Mm -hmm. she didn't. And so um, about her ninth month of life, I guess, I got the book that that made it work for me. And people have different books that make it work for them. Some people have tried all the books. I understand. The book that really did it for us was Healthy Sleep, Happy Baby. And when I read that you need to put them down before they are tired, because you need the resources of the body to go to sleep Mm. and that sleep begets sleep, that the more sleep you get, the more well-rested you are, the more capable of good sleep you are. All the light bulbs went off in my head. Mm -hmm. Sleep begets sleep. And it was so so counterintuitive that putting this child down at like 6 p.m., she would sleep better than if I put her down at like 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. And it changed our lives, honestly. And and now I with both of my girls, as different as they are in many, many ways, they are both excellent sleepers. They both still sleep like 11 hours a night. They both will still take a nap on the weekends. My two-year-old naps every day. I think Jane would if we, you know, if school didn't kind of interrupt her day. We're just big believers in it. We really understand now that if they get tired, they're not going to sleep well. It's that we have to get them down before they're tired and then they'll sleep. Yes, I totally agree. I had the same sort of, I co-slept with Griffin but until he was about probably three or four months old. And the other two I co-slept for when they were really little and breastfeeding a lot. And then right around the sort of five, six month mark, um, I did sleep training there was a small amount of crying. I don't feel like I traumatized them. Um, and But you know what's so funny is that even though I did those two and felt like I got it, I had to like relearn everything with Felix and I had gotten to some like what I would describe as sort of sloppy sleep cycles with him and had to just kind of be like, oh, right, okay, remember how to do this. And finally kind of figured it out, got him sleeping really well. We all, all my kids also go to bed pretty early. Everybody, even Griffin, he now he can stay up and read longer cuz he's almost 9 years old. Everybody goes to bed at 7:30. Everybody sleeps for about 11, 12 hours. If Amos has consistently always needed about an hour less sleep than everybody else, but um I'm also a big believer in sleep to prevent illness, so like over Christmas break, um 
it's a really, it's a very um, bullying technique. I take to sleep, bullying slash bribing. I lay my big boys in my bed. I have a big king size bed. I stay, I lay between them and I'm like, you have to lay there with your eyes closed, no noise until the timer goes off. And then when the timer goes off, if you're not asleep and you can get up, a uh, little secret, I don't actually set the timer. Um, so they take, we take naps on New Year's Eve. We take naps if there's been a sleepover the night before at someone else's house. They stayed up late. Um, cause I don't really like to be around them when they're cranky. I don't like to be around myself when I'm cranky. I don't like to be around myself when my kids are cranky. So it's just, it's best for everybody. Um, we do not co-sleep now. Nobody sleeps in our bed. Um, they don't even really come down and ask. I don't think they even know that's an option at this point. Um, but yeah, we, we, I, I'm so grateful that my friend looked at me and was like, this is something you need to teach them just like anything else. They're not going to fall into 11 hours of sleep a night. And she was right. And there are some kids that do. God bless them. And Griffin was pretty close. Um, Felix was much harder, probably looking back now because of his his stroke and he couldn't get quite comfortable because he has reduced usage in one of his arms. But once he started crawling and really got that arm worked out, like he slept, he's a great sleeper. They all are great sleepers. And it's, it's a huge part. I couldn't, I wouldn't be getting my eight hours of sleep, um, a night, even, you know, up until about six months ago, even Felix would wake up every once in a while, he'd get cold or whatever. And it's just so, so disruptive. Um, and I'm, I'm so grateful though, that we, that they're good sleepers and that, that is huge, huge, huge to our family's energy maintenance. It's been critical to our marriage, to our family dynamic, to my parenting when, when they aren't sleeping well and we go through those periods, right? You, Mm -hmm. somebody gets sick or whatever, and you get off the schedule. It, it completely reinforces for me what a critical part of our life it is that, we are very serious about their sleep. And I understand it's a battle sometimes. Mm-hmm. For the most part, with our younger daughter, Ellen, it hasn't been because this is just what she's known. You know, we started off this way and it's just how it's been. With Jane, because we had a learning curve with her, you know, we've gone through phases where she really fought us about it. And it is the thing that we are most insistent about because I think. When I read that book and just it oriented my understanding to like, this is the most important life skill I can give her in a lot of ways. The ability to rest is so important for her physically, emotionally, intellectually. I have to teach her to sleep. And so I've worked really hard at that. Now, you do you. So if this is not your thing, again, no judgment, but it has been important for me. Other things in my sort of personal energy, I find that when I take a walk at night by myself before bed, it is the the best version of me that exists because it clears my mind. I'm able to rest well. It makes me physically feel good. My back doesn't hurt when I wake up in the morning if I take a long walk before bed. So that's something I really love. I've never been a coffee drinker. I'm an iced tea drinker. I don't feel a whole lot of sensitivity to caffeine. What I am noticing more as I get older is major sensitivity to meat. Mm. And I'm coming to a point where I just don't want any meat at all after about noon. Because I I just don't feel good and I don't have much energy and I really can't sleep if I've eaten much meat at night. That's how I feel about alcohol. Even like one glass of red wine, if I'm not careful, I'm just it's like I wake up and I can feel my body processing the alcohol. It's so weird. I totally agree with that. I'm at a point where alcohol is just hardly worth the trouble. It Mm. really isn't. Well, 
One of my favorite things I ever heard was on a Oprah Super Soul conversation, and the the person I don't even remember who it was talked about Doctor Sleep, Doctor Sun, Doctor Food. I thought it mm-hmm. was so good. So we wanted to tackle Doctor Sleep, Doctor Energy, as I'll call it, because I think it's really important. We'd love to hear your insights, your tips, and tricks about how you uh, manage your energy levels throughout the days, throughout the weeks, throughout the months, throughout the year, and um, just keep the awesome feedback coming as always, you guys. to share one of my absolute favorite poems with you as we close out the episode today. This is Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life. We will be back in your ears on Friday if you subscribe to Pantsuit Politics, talking about the week's news. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.